Have you ever had a civil discussion with someone you disagreed with or who had a different perspective than you? If you have, what did you learn? Here on The Moderate Review, we try to have these kinds of discussions. So, let's talk. On this episode of The Moderate Review, I am joined by Karen McCabe, Assistant Campaigner for Humanist UK on Dignified Death, and we talk about what a dignified death is and how it is different than suicide. Listeners note, by having this interview, it does not signal my support or approval for dignified death or assisted death. This episode talks about death, which may not be suitable for everyone. So, let's talk. I am quite a James Bond fan, and amongst fans of James Bond, typically there is a unanimous view that Sean Connery is the best James Bond. The unpopular opinion that I have is that I think the best James Bond is Roger Moore. And in terms of why, it's because I think the sort of campy um, escapism era of James Bond was probably it at its best. And if you just want a sort of action film, then you have alternative franchises that sort of meet that criteria. But really what I think the the charm of James Bond is the sort of humour that it attaches to a sense of escapism. And Roger Moore, the, the famous joke people used to say about him was that he could only, his acting skills was to raise one eyebrow and then raise the other. And whilst to some extent that's probably true, um, I, I think he really brought to the floor that humour and that sense of escapism. Uh, I really never thought about it. I mean, I kind of, I think it was Daniel Craig and of course Sean Connery, I think are, are up there in my opinion, but huh, interesting. Yeah, never thought of it like that. So yeah, thank you for that. And this, uh, so we're talking about um, uh, what a dignified death is. And so before we kind of really get into it, could you maybe kind of describe maybe yourself, maybe like the organization you're affiliated with, what led you to decide to actually campaign for it? And why do you campaign for a dignified death? Yeah, of course. So first of all, I am Humus UK's assisted dying campaigner, and I've been working in that role now for nearly three years. Humanist UK is the national charity in the UK on behalf of the non-religious. We help people lead happier and more fulfilling lives for the one life that we have. One area where we particularly work, therefore, is on the issue of assisted dying, because there are really few issues in society that I think are more morally pressing than having the freedom to choose how, where and when you want to end your own life, which certainly in the UK is certainly prohibited by law, and I know in parts of America is also prohibited by law. The reason why I got involved in this campaign really goes back to one of the claimants who tried to change the law in the UK called Tony Nicholson. Now, Tony was a man who had lived a very active, happy life. He was something of an adrenaline junkie, is how his wife sort of describes him, until suddenly a stroke took that all away from him. And he woke up, as anyone could, with a condition that left him unable to move any of his limbs. It was called locked-in syndrome. You physically can't do anything other than move your eyes. And he decided, after seven years of trying to, to battle this condition, to, to adjust to his life, that it was just increasingly states of misery that he was living in. And his big concern was that as time went on, his life would become an even more dissatisfying and the pain he was in would become all the more great. So he tried to bring a case in the UK to change the law. He argued, I think quite rightly, that having the freedom to choose to end your life is 
a right of autonomy and the law unless there is good reason shouldn't prohibit someone from doing that it shouldn't in other words force people to live against their will because of course anyone who doesn't have this condition has that right the ability to end their life it was only because of tony's disability the fact that he would physically need someone else to help him in his life that he was incapable of doing so now he he unfortunately didn't succeed in that case and the reason why it really captured my attention was when afterwards he released a statement a statement that it took him several hours to prepare in which he effectively said that the court had now condemned him to a, a life of just just pain a life of endless agony both in a sort of physical sense but also in a psychological sense because he knew there now would be no escape for him and he said that in a civilized world we surely shouldn't treat people like this and i thought he was absolutely right and it's the, the anguish on his face is something that i've never been able to forget and it has never ceased to sort of motivate me in this campaign so far as um, why then we try and campaign for the right to die it really goes back to what tony was saying so i think broadly speaking there are sort of three reasons the first is this point about autonomy you know we we live in a society where it's generally accepted there isn't a single conception of how to live a good life people are free to choose to act in a manner that they think will pursue the, the best outcomes for them and of course dying is no different to actually a part of your life being dead is a state of existence dying is a process and so it, it must follow that you have a right to experience how you die and to alter that experience you for example might want it to be quicker you might want it to be painless and the law shouldn't stand in the way of somebody wanting to do that and secondly i think it's about compassion we know for example in the uk that even if everyone was given the best possible palliative care thousands of people would still die in unrelieved pain every year in those circumstances i can see no problem with giving people the choice to end their their pain and their suffering if that's what they wish to do so thirdly i think it's about dignity there is something i think just fundamentally wrong with the idea that if you have 10000 pounds you can travel to switzerland to end your life but you have to do so without telling anyone you love or care about about your intention and without having those who matter most to you around you it is a undignified death because it's one that forces you to die abroad and in secrecy but it's all the more outrageous that if you don't have 10000 pounds you're expected to stay in this country and to to almost suffer against your will for the benefit of a a law and often i would say because of someone else's um religious and ideological convictions that you perhaps don't share so that in, in essence is why we campaign the right to a, a dignified death and why humanist uk is one of the leading campaign groups trying to change the law in england and wales it oh, is quite interesting I haven't uh, thought about it and so i guess maybe for clarification i got i know you kind of talked about it a little bit more but maybe could you maybe kind of i guess maybe make the case uh, maybe why i guess dying is a right so far as why why it is a right i think it really comes back to this question of autonomy so and um, sort of typically speaking what you what modern western societies follow is something known as the harm principle the idea that people 
should be free to pursue their own interests, provided it doesn't cause harm to others. And the, the process that the, the courts have often taken on the issue of assisted dying is that they've said one aspect of that right, that being the right to self-determination, is that you should be allowed to die in a manner of your own choosing. So, for example, um, the right to die doesn't necessarily have to mean an assisted death. It could mean a death at a location of your choosing. You might, for example, choose to want to die at home, in a hospice, in a hospital. But more often than not, it, certainly in the United Kingdom, the argument is that the current law not only prohibits your ability to choose where you might want to die, it also um, restricts the manner in which your life can end. And that obviously comes into conflict with the idea of the harm principle, because ordinarily we would say that somebody is free to determine on what basis they'd like to end their life. Of course, subject to robust safeguards in order to make sure that there isn't any uh, unwanted effect for others. The other sort of point which, which I was making earlier about autonomy is that I think autonomy encompasses all aspects of lived experience. At its most trivial level, you get to decide what you want to eat every evening. At its slightly more weighty nature, you get to decide what convictions you want to hold and what beliefs you want to hold. Now, if you hold a particular belief about how you want to die, there's no reason that you shouldn't be allowed to exercise that. Because as I said, dying it isn't a state, it's a process. And therefore, you should have the ability to influence that process to make it more desirable, as you see. And I guess, uh, I know, like I said, there are different states and different countries who have dignified death policy. And so I guess more of, what specific policy are you campaigning for? So, Humanist UK, well, actually, perhaps if I take a step back, firstly, and I say that, okay. um, around the world, there are different laws on assisted dying. So, um, in some countries, for example, the law is prohibited only provided you don't have what's called a selfish motive. In the United Kingdom, or particularly England and Wales, the law is that any encouragement or assistance to help end another person's life is a crime, and those found guilty face up to 14 years imprisonment. Now, even if you aren't prosecuted, however, for that crime, you can also be punished in a civil sense, because you potentially can have inheritance withheld if you assist someone to end their life and you can think about why that might be a problem because if the only person who can help you end your life is your loved one they obviously have an incentive under the law not to do so because they have to be financially capable of forfeiting an inheritance now the argument that uh, the policy that we pursue is that we think that law should be overturned instead adults who are of sound mind who are either terminally ill or incurably suffering, think, for example, a bit like Tony Nixon, who I mentioned earlier, should have the ability to end their life, uh, either with or without assistance, obviously subject to robust safeguards and making sure that they've made a decision which is free from coercion, one that's long-standing and one that's an informed choice. And that's really important because that means we think alongside the right to die, there should also be the right to make informed decisions. You should have access to things like palliative care, to things like counselling, in order to make sure that you've pursued every option available. Could you possibly maybe describe it? You know, for example, if I wanted to, you know, pursue this, you know, I was sick of sound mind. What would the the steps and the procedures be like for me if I chose to pursue this? 
And, uh, under the current law, or if the law were to change? If the if the law were to change. Well, I should say that there are different countries around the world that have different policies on assisted dying, and they've developed different procedures. And that's why, for example, Humanist UK believes that we in this country should have an inquiry into the law, because we don't have a particular policy stance on how this should happen yet, partly because we think that we should look to the evidence from abroad and learn from it and develop the best procedures based on what's worked. But typically speaking, if you were to request an assisted death, you'd have to fulfil the following steps. Firstly, you'd have to qualify for assistance. And by that, what I mean is two independent doctors would have to verify that you had a, an incurable condition that was causing you unbearable suffering. Secondly, you would have to prove to the best of these doctors' assessment that your decision was long-standing. It certainly can't be on the spur of the moment. And one of the ways in which that's often protected and ensured is that you have to send in a written request. A period of time has to then occur in, in between that request, and then you have to make a second request to demonstrate that this isn't something that you, you've just thought of. It's something that you wanted for a considerable period of time. Thirdly, the doctors have to be confident that there is no question of coercion and that this is an entirely voluntary decision. Now, in some countries, for example, that means that you also have to attend counselling, um, potentially with your friends and family, to make sure that that there is no, no possible concern. Alternatively, in some countries, in the event that there is a concern, you have to go before a, a judge or a judicial board to demonstrate that it's a decision that you, you've reached of your own volition. Fourthly, you then have to demonstrate that it's one that you've, you've reached that's informed. So by that, what I mean is you have to have been told about your the prognosis you have, its implications, but also alternatives. And that's really important because actually in places like Oregon, what you see often is about a third of people who apply for an assisted death don't then tend to go through with it just because the process itself is enough basically to, to relieve their suffering. Finally, if you have qualified through all those steps, you then have to go through um, a final period of waiting, if, if you like a sort of cooling off period. And throughout this process, you're always reminded that you have the ability to opt out if you're not interested um, or if you've changed your mind. And as I say, that that's not actually uncommon. And then you would be provided with, um, typically it's either a pill that you swallow or it's, it's an IV, intravenous injection, and there's normally a sort of valve that you turn. Normally, you have to be the person that makes the final decision. Although in some countries, if you're physically incapable of doing that, you can also have a doctor do it upon your request. Um, you did talk about how if one has a condition you know, that's um, term, you know, terminally ill and like um, the pain is unbearable. So how would you describe what unbearable would be? Because I know that kind of can be a relative term. Ultimately, I think unbearable can only be judged by the person themselves because we obviously all experience life differently and it would be wrong for us to impose our understanding of what unbearable means upon others. But perhaps going to an example which I think sums it up well would be the case of Paul Lamb. Paul was a man that I, I was really glad to have known for a number of years who was also paralysed from the neck down. He'd been in a road traffic accident in the 1990s. And so 
almost as if it could happen to anyone, he went from being a, a really active builder to suddenly being confined in a wheelchair. And that in itself wasn't unbearable for him. He, he was very clear that that wasn't a problem. As his life went on, however, and sort of 20 years of this condition, his response to pain medication became increasingly worse. And he had to start making choices, really tragically, between whether he suffered or whether he remained conscious. And that's because the different cocktail of drugs he was put on often inhibited his ability to stay awake. But even then, he didn't consider that unbearable. The point that he considered unbearable was when he said, at some mornings he'd wake up and it would feel like fire was running through his veins. Uh, even though he obviously couldn't move any of his body, he could still feel the sensation of when they were they, they were in, in pain. Other days, he said that he felt like someone was repeatedly hitting him over the back of the head with a baseball bat. Uh, that was the point that he found unbearable. And the point that really worried Paul was that this suffering had got worse as time had gone on. You know, 10, ten years earlier, he, he sort of said that it felt like he had sort of a tingling, uh, tingling sensation in his legs. And the bit that really worried him was that if, as the law would have required, he, and did require, he continued to, to live into an older age, his pain would just get worse. And there would be nothing he could do to avoid it. And there was alongside, therefore, the, the physical suffering, this sort of unbearable psychological anguish, because he knew that there was no escape. No matter what he did, no matter how much he pleaded, there was going to be no way that he could end his suffering. And, and that, to me, I, I think would have been a, a strong case to qualify for an assisted death, if that's what Paul had wanted. You talked about how there are other countries who have these laws. And so... Um, what policies have you seen worked um, and what policies haven't? Or like, I guess more of like, what are very like, they make it too easy or maybe like too hard to get? It's, it's worth saying that perhaps um, that there is no country to my knowledge where it's too easy to have an assisted death. But in every country where assisted dying is legalized, there is a stringent set of safeguards which accompany it. And rightly so, because this is something that's serious and that we should make sure that we're protecting everyone in society and making everyone feel capable of making decisions they, they want to reach. And in countries where perhaps it hasn't worked as well, have been countries where the law is decriminalised as opposed to legalised. So take, for example, um, Switzerland, um, the one that everybody perhaps knows best. Switzerland's law hasn't actually legalised assisted dying. There isn't a, a piece of legislation in SAFE. There isn't a set of particular safeguards it merely doesn't result in a prosecution if you were to help someone end their life. Now, fortunately, the way that Switzerland has chosen, or the way that organisations in Switzerland have chosen to interpret that legislation, they have built in their own safeguards. But what that means is in places like Dignitas, it isn't the law that dictates certain safeguards exist. It's the fact that Dignitas themselves have decided they want to have safeguards. Where I think it works better where you get better consistency in the law is when you do have a, a clear framework in which to operate under and which you're capable of regulating something. And Canada, for example, is a very strong example in that case because it had a policy that was very much informed by evidence. It continues to have a policy which is informed by evidence. It at the moment has a review of international laws ongoing to make sure that it can update its law if any problems arise from its current operation, or if best practice from abroad indicates 
it's a better way in which it could be operating. The countries where I think the law works best are those where there isn't a what's known as a six-month criteria. Broadly speaking, Jack, that's because there are two models of assisted dying around the world. There's one which extends assistance to just those who are in the final stages of their life. So think, for example, the, the horrendous condition cancer and sort of stage four cancer. Places such as Oregon in the United States would give someone in that circumstance a right to die. But it wouldn't give someone like Paul or Tony the right to die, as I've, as I've mentioned. Countries, however, they would have the option would be places like Canada, places like Spain, places like Switzerland, somewhere like Germany, for example. And um, perhaps we'll go into this further, but certainly from what I've seen, that, that is the stronger law and that is the, the law which works best. You did talk about a dignified death. And so if one actually goes through the process and actually is able to actually go through with it and chooses to go through, how would this be different than suicide? Well, perhaps just de- dealing with the, the issue of suicide first. Um, I think we should be really careful and we shouldn't try to demonize people who choose to end their lives because it, 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 it's often in very tragic circumstances. The, but the main difference is that when you speak to psychologists about this, they, they will say that somebody who chooses to end their life via suicide it is because they they are feeling forced into it effectively. People come into this perspective um, often under extreme stress. They're often trying to to escape what feels like an inescapable circumstance. And it's a tragedy because were they given proper intervention and support, in all likelihood, they probably could have been helped, they could have been saved, and they wouldn't have had to end their life in that manner. Assisted dying is entirely different. Assisted dying is about somebody they're not trying to sort of escape a scenario in which they can be helped that they rationally are clear that their circumstances are um, irreversible and if anything they're just going to get worse it's a decision that they've reached over a number of um well under the law a number of months but in reality it's normally a number of years people often go on a journey when they want to choose an assisted death because often what happens is their friends and their family plead with them to stay around i think it's most human thing to do you don't want to lose those that you love about and um, obviously unlike suicide assisted dying is a process which has interventions throughout it and clear safeguards to prevent anyone who perhaps hasn't thought through everything or perhaps isn't aware of alternatives from making a decision that they would regret were they able to so so that's the main difference between them I, i don't really think it helps sort of make comparisons about assisted dying and suicide, save for one point, which is that, of course, it it is somewhat odd that the law, in our country at least, doesn't criminalise suicide. A a long time ago, we accepted it was wrong to prosecute people who had tried to end their lives unsuccessfully because we thought it was just morally repugnant to do that. However, we have this rather curious position where we do think it's right to criminalise helping someone to do something that's not unlawful. And what it means is you have this, this, I think, morally indefensible position, whereby people who are effectively physically disabled are denied the same options to end their life in a manner that they choose, that were, but for their condition, they wouldn't be in. With regards to perhaps how the process works, 
again, I should say, caution that there are different processes in different countries. But more often than not, um, what it involves is, um, if you take the example of uh, intravenous injection, you will go to a facility. Um, often it's sort of quite a nice, quiet um, facility in which your friends and family can be around you. Although you can occasionally um, seek to do it in your own home. And they will set up a, in a trip, sort of intravenous trip for you. Um, and you will have a, a, a sort of twisting valve that you have to turn. You will be asked to go through a series of questions, which always includes sort of quite near at the beginning, whether you still want to go through with an assisted death or whether you've changed your mind. And if you do have a decide that you want to end your life, you will then be told about how the procedure will work. You'll be given the, the sort of valve to turn. People often sort of say goodbye to their friends and family, and then you normally turn the valve. And typically, within a minute, you'll fall asleep. And within about five minutes, you'll have died. Has there been like any instances where like it has totally backfired, where like, I guess it was, you know, frankly, it was very horrifying to, um, I guess, to go through with this, you know, to actually, you know, you know, twist the valve and, and die or, or maybe like having some very adverse reactions, like maybe throwing up or something. Have there been any cases like that? And if, if so, what has been done to make sure that that it doesn't happen? Yes, I, I think you've hit on the, the point about different methods. So there was a study that was done about people who take medication um, orally, they sort of take, take pills. And um, they they later throw up the medication because they were given the wrong dosage effectively. It was a, from my understanding, it happens very rarely. The British Medical Association in the UK looked into this matter and they, they counted sort of a number of instances on their hands for when this had happened. And the learning point from that obviously was to to adjust the right dosage for someone based on their, their size, their build, their, their particular physiology. But of course, that is why we this should occur with professionals regulating it. Ultimately, were this to happen in an amateurish setting or an unprofessional setting, you carry these risks on a much greater level. And one of the really worrying things, particularly in America, is that in places where assisted dying isn't legal, there are groups who choose to informally try to access these pills online and then try to assist um, sort of their, their community to help them bring about the end of their lives. Now, I don't doubt for one second that these people aren't motivated by a sincere desire to be compassionate towards others and to try and help them. But they're, they're not trained professionals. Mm. They're not operating under scrutiny. They're not acting with any professionals having safeguards um, to make sure that they, they don't cause problems either for themselves or, or for the individual in question and so really I, I think the learning point is that you can't pretend the status quo of assisted dying is between a law which works and prevents people from ending their lives versus a legalized setting in which people end their lives the reality of assisted dying is that you have a status quo where people who can either afford it go to switzerland to end their lives or if they're desperate they seek out unethical and untrained sources and that to me is a really worrying prospect and it's one that if you if like me you believe in the importance of safeguards and open scrutiny it's one that should motivate you to support a change in the law 
one of my final questions uh, before we end this interview is if anybody wanted to learn more about you um, or Dignified Death or Humanist UK, um, where would they go to learn more about that? I'm told that what you should do is you should type humanist.uk uh, in, into your browser. But if, like me, uh, you are use Google for everything, if you Google Humanist UK, it will come up. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we have a really good YouTube channel in which Paul Lamb, the one I mentioned, gave a really moving speech at one of our conventions not a few years ago, and you can find out more about us there. And uh, before we close, are, is there any uh, final comments you'd like to make? I think just on the issue of assisted dying, it really comes down to a question of values. And I would encourage anyone listening to think about what their own values are. Because often it's easy when talking about this issue for it to feel remote, for it to feel like it happens to other people and not yourself. But really the lesson that I've always drawn, particularly when speaking with people who want an assisted death, but the law didn't allow them to access it, is that these are issues that could affect anyone. Any day someone could wake up and they could be um, struck by fate with a condition that takes away their sense of autonomy and freedom. And if you think if it were to happen to yourself, which would you prefer? Would you prefer a, a system which denied you the ability to end your life, a system which forced you to live on often in unimaginable pain and un uncurable suffering? Or would you want a system where people respected what your decisions were they respected that you wanted to die amongst your close friends and family. They respected that you wanted a quick death, not a drawn-out process, that you wanted a peaceful and painful death. And really, when I think of it like that, I'm always clear that I think the law should change, because if I want it for myself, I can't rightly deny it to others. This concludes my interview with Kieran McCabe on Dignified Death. I personally do not support dignified death or assisted death at all. However, as I have done this interview, it has made me a bit more sympathetic to what is being proposed. If I were to have a different religious background or moral system, perhaps I may agree with what is being campaigned for. For me, this interview has highlighted how one's morals shapes one's beliefs, and to an extent, public policy. As usual, educate yourselves on what is happening and consider other perspectives and viewpoints. Until next time, I'm your host, Jack Taggart. The views expressed in the moderate review are solely of the individuals participating and not necessarily of the organizations they are affiliated with. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please tell your friends and please follow us on Twitter at tmodrev, that is the letter T, mod, rev, one word. Until next time, I'm your host, Jack Taggart.